0: Hello and welcome to another installment of the Family Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. I'm Mark Ablett. I'm joined today by the latest addition to the Pump Court team, Catherine Ellis. Catherine is ranked as a leading junior in the Legal 500, who describe her as conscientious, hardworking, and a fabulously prepared advocate. Catherine is a children's specialist familiar with the most complex of issues. She's no stranger to the higher courts up to the Court of Appeal. Catherine, welcome. Hi there, Mark. And welcome to Chambers as well, I should say, actually.
1: Thanks very much. <laughs> uh,
0: so Catherine joins me today to discuss FII, or fabricated or induced illness, and how it is dealt with in proceedings, particularly in light of the February 2021 guidance released by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. So, Catherine, for the um, the relatively uninitiated, and I, I have to say, I do rather count myself in that. Um, what is FII?
1: Well. Uh, Thanks, Mark. You've actually quite helpfully uh, set out what it stands for, um, which is fabricated or induced illness uh, in children. Um, But in fact, uh, the traditional term of FII does encompass rather a broad spectrum of disorders or or unusual presentations. um, And it can range from uh, the situation where a parent may be just overly anxious um, uh, have a lack of knowledge about illness and may present their child um, more often than not to the doctors. Um, and then it can range through to the situation where a carer, uh, and I will use the term parent probably just to, uh, in place of um, parent or carer, um, but where a carer or parent um, actively fabricates uh, symptoms in their child to medical professionals and to the very serious end where uh, sometimes symptoms can be induced by the carer. Um, That was really the broad spectrum that was uh, used in the previous guidance to the College of Paediatricians which came out in 2009 that many professionals were working with uh, for quite some time. The new guidance um, brings... Really greater clarity to the lower end of the previous spectrum, I would say. Uh, it comes with a, a, a more specific definition of the situation of what's called perplexing presentations, uh, which isn't a new definition. Uh, I think it's been sort of knocking around since around 2013, uh, but it, it is now enshrined in the specific guidance with specific. Uh, Direction to paediatricians as to how to manage cases which may fall into the perplexing presentation situation, and also there's definition of of a situation of medically unexplained symptoms. Um, So the new guidance defines both those two, as well as fabricated induced uh, illness.
0: And they are, would you, are they distinct from FII or, or kind of sub conditions?
1: Yeah, well, um, in fact, it, within the new new guidance, um, there is an emphasis really on perplexing presentations. But what you see is that there really is envisaged an overlap between the three different definitions um, and the, the term of, of um, medically unexplained symptoms, which are when there are symptoms the child complains of, which are presumed to be genuinely experienced, but are not fully explained by any known pathology. Uh, it has been reported that on occasion medically unexplained symptoms may also include a situation of perplexing presentations or also um, fabricated or induced illness. So there is some overlap Um, but my reading of the new guidance I think is it suggests to me that where um, the the greater emphasis is on uh, perplexing presentations um, there is uh, a guidance to paediatricians to perhaps not focus so greatly on the parental motivations. Um, some FII does obviously include deception on the part of the parent, but the new guidance does recognise that some parents may not um, have a deliberate motivation to deceive, um, and it also flags up that really for the paediatrician, the motivation of the parent should not perhaps be the primary focus, but the impact on the child uh, and the uh, reasons for the child's presentation should be the focus for the paediatrician.
0: I suppose that's where we transition into um, really Manette's question is let's bring it into the the family law world given the title of the podcast. Um, I suppose really it's, it's that the first question is is the child suffering harm almost regardless of parental intent?
1: yes yes of course and i think that that again is one of the uh, the emphases in the new in the new guidance which is that uh, looking at perplexing presentations where harm or likely harm has not yet been established so the focus is on uh, trying to look at early um, investigation where there's perplexing presentation before harm is suffered by the child. Uh, and there's quite a, a, a lot of time um, within the new guidance that goes into steps to be taken by the medical professionals when they suspect perplexing presentations, when there are what's called alerting signs, which aren't vastly different in the new mm. guidance compared with the 2009 document, um, uh, and then when, when concerns should be escalated.
0: I mean, is this something that you'd say is sort of unique to the public sphere of of children proceedings or do you see it in private proceedings as well?
1: Uh, It's definitely one that you'd be more commonly used to be seeing in in public law, but it's not a phenomenon um, that's completely without private law proceedings. Um, In some of the more extreme private law cases, particularly where there's alienation, or if you have a case where a section 37 report or guardian is indicated, um I've sort of done that backwards, it, but, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is in, in the more extreme private law cases, you, you can come across this phenomenon. And those are likely to be the cases where if you come along and you think there may be an issue here, a fabricated illness, you may find yourself wanting to apply for a section 37 report or, or for a, a perhaps a guardian to be appointed.
0: I'd say that's my my only experience of it is after a fat finding hearing there was a concern uh, I think someone still called it Munchausen's by proxy at that point point. Um, and yeah we got a section 37 report and a garden appointment and it ended up in public law proceedings uh, and it's, it's it, as a as a legal professional obviously this is the difficulty with a lot of public law proceedings is there are so there's these really complicated medical issues and I know I'm just reading the guidance and they say that outside the court arena that there's no clarity about when harm reaches the threshold of significance so there's clearly not even that certainty in the medical world but as a legal professional how are you approaching something like this what are the warning signs that you're looking for?
1: Um, you, in, in a private law case particularly um, you can find that uh, well, in any case where perplexing presentation or FII is indicated, it is not uncommon for the child to have a genuine uh, medical issue. Uh, And often that there is the need in the parent to either um, present the child as more hampered by their medical condition than they are, um, and in some cases to completely fabricate. Um, So the motivations that are recognized in the guidance, and we're looking at uh, part four of the guidance, um, talks about there's two different types of parental motivation. One is the parent experiencing a gain and the other is the parent's erroneous beliefs as to the child's condition. Um, and whilst there is an emphasis in the document about paediatricians not focusing too much on the motivations of the parent, for those of us in the family law arena, particularly if you're in private law, the motivation, potential motivation um, of the parent is perhaps key because it will inform you as to how to build your case as to what sort of little factors you're looking for. And where I think it really touches on private law proceedings is the first factor, the first motivating factor, which can be the gain uh, that the parent experiences from the child being presented as unwell or more unwell than they are. Uh, And we do see it um, not uncommonly in private law proceedings with uh, reasons for contact orders not being complied with. uh, or, or for, for relationships between a separated parent and a child not really following the, the course that one would want them to and being blamed on the fact that a child has a specific uh, need or, or medical diagnosis that sometimes it's alleged the other parent can't cope with or it may just simply be used as a reason why the child um, is unable to attend contact.
0: Sure. I, I mean, I suppose the second the second motivation, the erroneous beliefs motivation... I suppose that potentially points at mental health concerns with the parent as well.
1: Yes. Yes, it can do. Uh, it, it can also, you may also see that in the in the more anxious parent. Um, so the, the, the parent is perhaps not um consciously alienating or consciously preventing a, a relationship with the separated parent, but but is in fact incredibly anxious about how the child's condition affects them. Um and yes, there is obviously um, I think with both motivations, there is an overlap with, with potential mental health concerns.
0: And at what point do you say that this, given that the, apparently the, the medical professionals can't say from a medical point of view, from your point of view, when does it cross the threshold to significant harm? I, I mean, obviously broad range question.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, as in many uh, care proceedings, there is such a broad spectrum of what constitutes significant harm. Uh, and each judgment often based on the child themselves and the family that's involved in the proceedings or or not yet involved in the proceedings. Um, Whilst you drew attention to the paragraph in the document about without being in the court arena, uh, there being a lack of clarity as to when the significant harm threshold is reached. uh, I have to say in my experience of public law proceedings, even within the court arena, there is often an uncertainty as to whether the the, the, uh, significant harm threshold is reached there are very obvious cases. The obvious cases in in FII would be, I would say, where the the diagnosis is one of FII rather than perplexing presentation, or you've got illness induction, or you've got um, interfering with samples. In those circumstances, it's actually a much easier judgment call. The paediatricians will have hopefully simply referred the matter to social services. it's the grey areas the perplexing presentation where it becomes a little harder to formulate your case as to what the harm is and you want to be looking at I would say at things like daily life not simply the medical impact but things like school attendance um social involvement you know is the child able to have friends or, or go around to other other friends houses um the 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 a harm ca- that can arise from perplexing presentations. Are they are they going for lots of medical appointments? Are they having lots of tests, sort of blood tests, uh, things like that? Um, it, it's useful to make yourself, I, I think, a detailed note of all the different impacts uh, and then have a look at it all in the round and think to yourself, actually, is this as, taken as a broad picture interfering uh, with the child on a level that is significant, that's harming them significantly? And can you plead it individually as well?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, you've been mentioning. We talked about the guidance about how it's introduced these three definitions. Uh, are there any other changes that the guidance has brought in? I mean, is it are we are we having a radical change or is it just clarification here?
1: Well, that um, there are other changes. Um, there, uh, we've talked about the the greater clarity about the underlying motivations and perhaps the emphasis on the fact that simply because a child's presenting in a perplexing way that can't be explained and there may be exaggeration of symptoms it doesn't necessarily follow that there is deception on the part of the parent and i think it's important that that has been set out now particularly if you are acting for a parent either in public law proceedings or or within private law um, to to sort of underline that that your client isn't isn't somebody who is dishonest um But they're also uh, towards the end of the guidance, there's a a lot of detail about a focus on rehabilitation plans. Um, Now, this is probably more for the medical professionals, uh, but it can also be useful for the lawyer, um, which is perhaps in the situation where you may be acting for a client who has had findings made against them of either perplexing presentations um, or or fabrication. Um, To be able to to show that your client is willing and able to to engage with a rehabilitation plan will be quite important. Uh, And the other factor is that what's envisaged by the guidance is that the plans would be a relatively long-term mechanism uh, and that even when the plan has been closed, uh, paragraph 6.3 of the guidance talks about... um, unless there's being a permanent positive change in the caregivers would require long-term follow-up by a professional at the closure of the plan. So there is an argument if you're for the fabricator, um, that there is ongoing monitoring by agencies that would ensure that, that future harm may be less likely.
0: And I guess that feeds into the whole challenge to care plan. If, Mm adoptions the or placement order sorry is on the cards have you done have you tried everything
1: yeah yeah nothing else will do yeah uh, so, so yes i mean particularly for for care proceedings and um, but also for private law um if if you have a child who's particularly attached to the the carer who may have been um, fabricating uh, and has a, a, a very bare relationship at that stage with the separated parent, you may be able to rely on the um, the presence of the rehabilitation plan as a safeguarding measure to prevent a change of residence, for example.
0: Do you think having this um, this clearer terminology, though, helps in terms of identifying the more grey area cases, like you said, that we can perhaps look at perplexing presentations as one of the most concerning because it, it could go either way
1: yeah it's a bit soon to say i have to mm. say um the it, it will remain to be seen how uh, how active paediatricians are in terms of trying to get to the bottom of perplexing presentations in the way that's envisaged by the guidance um we all know that the NHS is is under you know, really under the cosh and, and quite often matters are only brought to light or, or recognised when they're really at the sharp end um, of the spectrum. So it, it will, we'll have to wait and see whether there is a real shift in in, in the way that, that these cases are dealt with. Um, I should also flag up one other thing is in respect of, of record keeping, uh, which has a whole section to itself at, uh, at uh, part eight. I don't think it's really anything new. Um, But again, if you are, for the parent, challenging um, allegations of FIR, particularly in the public law arena, um, you really need to get to grips with the records that were made. Are they accurate? Are they borne out by the witness statements? Usual stuff.
0: Yeah, usual, but really important. I mean, just to sort of tie what you were saying, uh, do you have any pointers for... Any solicitors that might be listening, private law or public law sphere as to, as to yeah. I suppose it's two points. The first is if you suspect that someone on the other side in a private sphere might have this, or there might be perplexed presentation, then what to do if you're representing the person who's potentially yeah. going through this?
1: Yeah, so I think if you have suspicions about uh, a presentation of... Uh, the, the child in, in a situation where you're representing the separated parent um, then it's a case that it's a matter of building your case um, as best you can and it is a little harder at that stage particularly if it generally seems to be accepted that a child has a medical condition you may want to look into experts around the particular condition they have um, or even uh, trying to persuade the court under part 25 that it's necessary for a specialist, a paediatric overview of the child's care. Um, that is steps that would be taken in a public law case, but in fact it would most likely be the local authority or the child solicitor driving that investigation. Um, another thing to be aware of, uh, the, the guidance recognises that Sometimes when clinicians have concerns uh, along an FII basis, they can be hesitant about making that concern obvious in the child's medical records. Um, And there's a reason for that, because up until the point at which an FII diagnosis is confirmed, medical professionals have a duty to investigate um, equally uh, what the other possible explanations may be. And of course, one doesn't want things like suspected FII in a child's medical records if if the professionals turn out to be incorrect. So there is a suggestion that some uh, professionals may choose to use tracking medical records with a red flag in the original records and then some duplicate records that that travel with the child. So you may wish to to ask that question of of any record keepers um, when asking for medical records. Just be mindful to ask if there are any tracking um, records or duplicate records that they should be provided to the parties. When you are defending somebody accused of uh, FII style harm in a a public law case, you want to be looking, I think I've already mentioned the records, Mm. um, also considering whether the harm to the child is fully identified and set out by what's alleged, whether the professionals in the case have leapt to an FII assumption and not gone through the considering of the perplexing presentations um, process. Obviously, where there are induced illness concerns, um, then you know the the, the paediatrician does does tend to have to leap to, to making the referral to the local authority. But but the uh, the more longer term and chronic issues, one should always look at whether they've really now followed this, this new guidance. Um, and also, as we've already touched on, the motivation uh, of of the parent and potential motivation in a private law sphere, um, rather than you know. Uh, as a specific pointer to solicitors, but something to be investigated when you or explored when you see the evidence is whether the professionals obtained the separated parents' view about the child's condition. Um, the, the guidance just touches on the parents' views of the child's condition should be obtained. Um, but it strikes me what often happens, particularly in alienation cases, is yeah. the one parent has the significant involvement with the medical professionals and the others don't. So it may well be um, a, a nice avenue of challenge that they haven't really sought your clients' opinion.
0: But it, I mean, it's the kind of thing, isn't it, that e- e- even in a private sphere, you, you're going to need part 25 evidence. I struggle to see how you make that argument without a paediatric report.
1: Yes. Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because it's a bit chicken and egg. Yeah. <laughs> even The, yeah, yeah. the paediatric report. Um, but so I think what would be helpful in your position statement if you decide you need to go down that route is have a, you know, really go through the papers with a fine-tooth comb and, and set out every single either discrepancy or issue where your client is um unsure that symptoms are borne out, um, any evidence you can have from the school or other professionals that may be involved in the child's life as to what's been seen, um, and really just you, you have to go for your your part 25 application as well as you can.
0: Yeah, but it's a, that real front-loading of disclosure, I suppose, as you say, from schools, medical reports, yes. things that in potential alienation cases, the separated parent might not immediately have as well.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, I mean, so then your other option would be perhaps to go down a different route and to t- try and get a guardian on board.
0: Yeah, always helpful, <laughs> especially <laughs> with this case. Well, look, I think, um, I, I mean, could talk about it all day, but uh, I think we'll wrap it up for, for now. Catherine, thank you so much for that uh, guide I and mean, it's really really fascinating and if i've learned anything it's very complicated and i should just ask you if i come across it i think but um <laughs> well
1: my door's always
0: open <laughs> thank you um <laughs> thank you. listeners i i found that list uh, useful and um thank you very much for listening uh, everyone who's been sending feedback and suggestions we're very very grateful please do keep it coming mine and tara's emails are on the website and you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcast if you fancy as long as you say something nice um thank you very much for listening and until next time goodbye